0: Welcome to the Grappling Discourse Podcast. Today I am joined by one of my good buddies, Isaac Stackhouse. Isaac, it is a pleasure to have you on today. The first question I want to ask you is when did you start training? Like, how did you get into martial
1: arts? Well, like, I was a, I had gone to play college football. And when I got there, I was like probably 210, 215. And I hung out with a bunch of offensive linemen, and defensive linemen. So when I left, I was probably about 225, 230, and um, I was like football athletic. I wasn't really athletic as far as I wasn't running miles. I wasn't doing any cardio or anything, but I would grown up swimming, and I had been like an athlete my whole life, and and, um, when I left college football, that kind of like left a void of no practices to go to, no, like, I had no routine, because I had been an athlete my whole life. So, after I was working a job for a little while, I was probably 20, I was 20 at the point, and uh, I had been introduced, I knew about the UFC, I had, like, seen guys do groundwork, I had gone to a wrestling practice with a friend of mine in Kentucky, and that was, like, my first exposure to, like, skilled grappling, and, like, skilled people doing it, and I was like, oh, this is kind of cool, and that was wrestling. So I had a friend of mine that had suggested a, a guy that was teaching jiu-jitsu out of, like, a, a taekwondo place in Montgomery, Chung's, and after hours, so, like, they would have all their kids' classes and stuff like that. It'd wrap up at, like, eight thirty, nine o'clock, and then, like, as long as we cleaned up and locked up, they'd let us train as long as we wanted, and so, like, I kind of got thrust into this... It's not. I, I didn't go to like a traditional class. I didn't do like the shrimps down the mat and do all the like. Here's all. I I just showed up and it was a group of like four or five dudes that were just. One was one was a brown or had just gotten his brown belt, but he moved away like as soon as I started. And then my buddy Alan Manley was a purple belt at the time, and he's actually just got started training back recently. But um, he was basically just showing up unlocking the gym and we were rolling and just like thrashing and just hours of just sweat and all that and I I just instantly was hooked in that way so like that's how I started uh was because I, I also was looking for a way to start losing weight because at that point when I started looking around at this I was 200 and My heaviest was 270 pounds.
0: Mm, Dang, I can't even imagine you at 270. So tell the people like right now how much you weigh and what you've been competing at and what you fought MMA at.
1: Right this very second, I weigh like 179 pounds. But I've been competing recently in the 170 weight class for for, uh, this PGF Mm -hmm. uh, uh, qualifiers. But um, I have competed at, uh, I'm very comfortable competing at like 155. For uh, MMA and stuff like that, just because I I can I five eleven, so like when I was at Kentucky and I was in football, they laughed at me during the like measurement day. You know when they come in and like measure you and do all this, they laughed at me because I was like standing on my tippy toes when they were taking the height. And my and Joker Phillips walked by and he's like, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "Man, you know I'm not gonna get on the field. I want to be six foot two twenty five on the program." <laughs> so like. I always, I'm kind of that body type that there's not really a weight class, but, like, I've gotten to the point now that from being so large, and, I mean, I was large because I was just, I have no self-control when it comes to food. And so, like, what I had to do was I had to take food and create that into, like, a a, a, a relationship that was, like, I'm fueling myself. And so that's kind of where I've broken down now, and I'm I'm now maintaining even through my hip surgery recently i had only gotten up to like i saw 200 pounds that worried me because i I joke with people all the time that like i'm like i'm i'm a bear claw away from 270 like i could i could i can get off the rails easy but uh but yeah no i've been maintaining like under under like 195 for the like better part of seven or eight years yeah, and I want to talk
0: about your diet a little bit later, but let's yeah. kind of go back to the jujitsu journey. So you're you're thrashing around, right? You and a couple of guys a purple belts, kind of the highest level you've seen. I know you did some training, and you received your belts down uh, your belts down there at Auburn MMA. Yeah. Talk about your transition from, you know, that room with just a couple of guys to kind of a more formal school where you are, you know, where you did receive your belt promotions.
1: Right. Well, like, so the transition kind of happened over a little bit of time. Like I was in that room and then like the scene in Montgomery was kind of developing. There was a couple of gyms that were open up around there and um, at that point in time, Um, I had met my then girlfriend and now wife, uh, when we were 18. So we got married pretty soon after I was probably doing jujitsu for about like a year and a half, two years before we got married. And then like, I got married and I was working on an ambulance and I had just no time to myself. Like I was working 24s, 48s, 72s, and I just never got a chance to train. So I was like that white belt that like got super into it and addicted and then like, stop showing up and then uh like two years went by and at that point I shot back up to like 250 260 I was I got I got real heavy I was super like depressed and whatnot like just kind of like trying to figure out my mid-20s and not knowing where I was and whatnot and um I got off the ambulance and went to go work in uh the line work job where I was like climbing poles doing uh being an apprentice lineman and in order to climb poles, you cannot be fat and out of shape, 250, 260. So, then again, that's where I made the transition and really stuck to it. At like that's why I always joke is like I I know now like I can slide off the the rails. And then when I got to that job, there was like this lull in um my afternoons because I got off work at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And my wife worked out of town, and so she wasn't home till like late in, in the evenings and whatnot. And so I was like twiddling my thumbs. And I've never been good at just like going to a gym and whatnot. And then that's when I came back around and called my friend Alan and was like, "Hey, do you know anybody here in Auburn that has a a gym?" And that's where he recommended Andy Roberts. And that's I walked in, rolled jujitsu, and was like, "Oh, this is what's been missing. This is why I was sad. This is why like these are all the." I've been missing this part of my life again. And so like when I plugged back in there at Auburn, um, it was a really good community. Uh, Andy was kind of, uh, winding down his competition as far as his personal fight career. And so like, he was really just focusing on guys that like wanted to get into the, into the world of fighting and into the MMA and into, uh, jujitsu and whatnot. And, um, He's an outstanding coach, and he took a couple of us that were kind of like game and like ready to go and just was like, all right, hold your nose and let us jump over the edge. Um, whether or not that's like the best approach, sometimes like people can debate of like diving headfirst in. But, I mean, my very first fight was in Mississippi in uh, uh, the the town's escaping me, but it was a tiny little town, and we fought in like some abandoned supermarket and uh, the only difference between us and the pros was because we were, quote, unquote, amateur because MMA is split up into amateur and pro, and we weren't getting paid. The pros were. And we also had uh, time limit differences, and that was it. There was no padding. There was no rule differences. My buddy literally took a guy's el- uh, eyebrow and put it on another guy's cheek. Like his that guy's eyebrow was on his cheek when they came out of the fight from elbows. And so, like, I was immediately immersed in it and loved every second of it. So, like, that was my reintroduction to jiu-jitsu, but through an MMA lens. And so, like, I was hooked when I got into that realm. So, like, I was in the traditional school, like you were talking about, which Auburn MMA had that section of it. But, like, I was in the group under Andy Roberts that, like, we were trying to, like, fight every weekend if we could. And we were, I I fought sometimes like two week turnarounds and that's, I was deep for, that's been the last like seven, eight years. Wow.
0: That's just incredible. What is it that made you fall in love with MMA? And do you think like it takes a certain person? Because I think it's really rare for somebody to fall in love with MMA.
1: Yeah, man, I don't know. I've been kind of racking that part of my brain for a while here now because like, I'm a little, I'm older now. I've, I've been around the block. Like I've seen the business side of it a couple of times. And, you know, for, for all of this that I'm talking about, this has been an amateur career. Like this has been with the goal of going into a pro career and there's not a whole lot of guidance. So like it takes a special person to even want to like initiate that. But then like, there's even another realm that you, you cross where, there's something that you're chasing that like a lot of people talk about the feeling or like the cl- mind's clarity. Mine is like, there's nothing more amazing than the middle of a fight and having absolute control over your emotions, over your thoughts, over all the internal stuff that's mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. There's a crowd that's fun. Like the roaring crowd and there's the like technicality. And I've really fallen in love with using the technicality of jujitsu inside the realm of a fight because, like, you can slow it down, you can, and, and to me, like, somebody who's comfortable enough to, like, almost de-escalate a fight to finish a fight, rather than get more aggressive than the guy, more, like, if they get more technical, like, that's really what I've fallen in love with in the last years, but, like, then, initially, it was 100% that, like, tunnel vision feeling of, like, adrenaline and everything you're feeling as it, you know, rushes in as you're walking in, like, that's what I got, like, addicted to initially. So
0: you start fighting. How many fights have you had? You know, and I know it's probably hard uh, because I, I'm sure at that point, I know there was a bunch of unsanctioned fights. There were fights that were taking place, like you said, just abandoned grocery stores and <laughs> bars. And, I mean, the scene has progressed a lot in the yeah. last eight years. So yeah. kind of talk about the early scene, how many fights you've had, and um when,
1: when your last fight was. So I was on the, like, front end of commissions becoming involved. And so, like, there's a lot of guys that I've hung out with. Like, Andy's one of those guys that, like, fought in this circuit that, like, there was no real record of it other than like some grainy videos and like stories and stuff like that. And like that, honestly, that fascinates me, especially at this point, more than some of the UFC level stuff. Like I like the underground aspect of the guys, like trying to make it and like kind of just the gritty fight clubs, the whole reason that everybody got attracted to Masvidal. Like, it's like, Oh, like this guy that like fought through the streets, like, we were raised on movies about that. So, like, that was kind of the the cool aspect of it. Um, I've had 14 fights, I think, and I think, like, 13 of them are on the Internet something like that but like the, the reporting had just started coming around when i started as far as like they were reporting your fights and talking about it, and you never had the which i think is a good thing because like you had times that i heard stories from the guys in the generation before me of like you'd have a guy that was a professional boxer over in you know georgia who was like 32 and one come over and be like oh yeah yeah, yeah. i'm an amateur mma fighter i'm o and o. And then like just piece up like 13 of the guys that's like, oh, they've never even boxed a day in their life, and here's a professional boxer, have fun. So like you don't really see those matchups anymore. I didn't I didn't see like huge mismatches. What we saw a lot was like in the amateur world was you, Andy and I Andy and I used to call it like turd smashing where you take two turds, throw them in a cage, smash them together and see what happens, and just see who's harder. <laughs> It's like, that's what a lot of it was. And it was just kind of a money getting thing. And like guys where it it was a lot more of just a big party. And so like, that's some of what it made it fun was that like, you'd get because they weren't paying any of these guys, you can get them to put 80 your homies on this card. All of y'all go down to the beach and fight on this card, and there's this big party. There's a thousand people there to play with you, and like there's an after party and all that. So, like, it was a little mini kind of like kind of like a live in the rock star lifestyle, a little bit on this mini thing. Um, but it's changed in a lot of ways. Cause that was the second part of your question, right? Mm-hmm. It was like kind of how, yeah, it's how it's changed. It it's changed in a lot of ways to where people are trying to keep up with the fact that like it's become a sport. Like we're on ESPN now, and I mean, like, and I think a lot of people didn't even acknowledge, like, back when Connor fought in uh, when they fought in um, Madison Square Garden. Who did who who he fight there? That was like the first time he fought there.
0: Oh man! But
1: you know, you know, what I'm about. like that yeah. that was a significant thing because, like, there were senators that. In our adult lifetime, or, or adult, like as far as like beyond, you weren't a child. Most of all of us that are my age and my friends and are my peers can remember this. There were senators that were saying, over their dead body, would there be human cockfighting in the state of New York? And yet, here's one of the biggest pay per view events that we our sports ever seen happening in Madison Square Garden. Like that's huge. So like that wasn't lost on me in all this. And so like I feel like that this generation now they're trying to pad it more to make it more palatable for the passerby viewer, for the amateur stuff. And in my opinion, sometimes, like, I think that's making it a little bit dangerous, like the padding and the, like, shin guards and the helmets and whatnot. I think that gives, like, a false sense of security. So, like, there's some things that have changed a lot for the good because you don't have so much sleaziness that's happening at the body level, at the bottom level, I mean, but, like, there's still so much sleaziness. Because, like, I, personally, I don't necessarily agree with any amateur sports. Like, as far as, like, college sports and the NCAA and then, like, in amateur MMA and stuff like that. Like, these guys are making a lot of money off of guys that they give them no compensation. This guy's a mechanic in his everyday life. Like, and they're going in there and they're risking body and limb, you know, and, and dare I say it, life. Like, there there can be life-altering Altering, altering—that's a rough word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, a life, al- there can be a life-altering thing that can happen inside that cage, and I think that we overlook that with all these like safety things that we trick ourselves with. And so, like for some parts, I think that there's good things happening for the sports because you're going to start seeing more and more low-level guys being able to break out, make money, do things other than fighting, coaching—like those type jobs are starting to become a thing, and. And it's a cultural thing. Like I said, we're on ESPN. You can go get a um, commentating job with somebody like that. Like, that never was a thing eight years ago, nine years ago. But, like, now you've also got the flip side of it of, of we kind of, like, nerf it up a little bit and be like, see, we're making this thing safe, and it's not really safe. So, like, I think it's changed good and bad.
0: Yeah, it, it's been an interesting interesting ride this past decade of brazilian jiu-jitsu and mma where you've got this diamond that has a bunch of dirt on it right Right. the people that are in the sport know the beauty of it they understand how valuable it is especially compared to even other sports just the life lessons and just the technical ability that's going on but like you said you've got senators you've got literally people in the government i remember it was uh, john mccain he Mm -hmm. was one of them john mccain in arizona was like he was calling it human cockfighting and was like he was trying to ban it in the country. Yep. And like you said, New York senators were like, no, 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 they're not. And so when Connor fought there, it was a big moment, you know. Um, in, in Alabama, scene and Georgia and, and Mississippi, uh, very, very interesting, right? Because we've always kind of been on the forefront of MMA and allowing MMA. Well, a couple of the first early UFCs were were down in this area, so I think your perspective is fascinating. And I guess like the the really big question is for a guy that's interested in getting into fighting, what path would you take them through? So imagine you've got a guy that's maybe in a similar situation as you, played college football, or just a you know an eighteen year old that is looking for something, looking for a passion, looking for something how would you take them from um, you know day one to getting ready to sign a pro con like getting ready to turn pro
1: well like from from my perspective as far as like I've I'm, I've been sitting on that pro ledge for a while and so like a lot of the things that I tell guys that are coming up behind me is don't really believe the hype of like, especially if you're good. Cause like there's, so there's two approaches here. You have the guy that like wants, cause I'm this guy that wants to work hard, that wants to figure out how to like get better and how to get in there and do all that. But like, I'm bringing like heart and a little bit of natural athleticism to the table. That's about it. <clears throat> if you're a guy that's like bringing a bunch of stuff to the table, the sport can very likely like chew you up and spit you out very quickly. Like, so the difference is, is like, so I was a walk on at Kentucky. I got in, like I said, on my spunk and my like pizzazz. I was, I wasn't anything. Then there's like Eric Anders. That's, you know, this type of, of human that has already figured out how to inflict damage on another human body. We just need to show him a different way to do it. Like, like, so, those guys have different approaches. But when you would come in, the pathway to me, and I'm probably biased because most of my training has been from this, is 100% the Jiu Jitsu pathway. And I think that the Jiu Jitsu community, the way that we're kind of swinging into this combat Jiu Jitsu thing, and I mean, we were talking about this on the Dream Show with uh, Steven the other day of the guys that believe that that's just slapping fooling themselves like Mm. that's a strike like there's guys getting knocked like technically knocked out like that can not move and they're getting palm struck and the guy that's doing the palm strike isn't damaging his hand while he does that whereas like if I'm on top of you and I'm just raining down punches I miss your head once and I hit the ground I very likely just broke my hand if I'm trying to punch you if I just miss with my palm strike there's a lot more control so if I was trying to teach a guy or like guide a guy into MMA that's never been in a fight, needs to learn how to fight, I think the combat jujitsu model. Now we haven't seen this play all the way out yet, like seeing like a guy come from combat jujitsu and then dominate somewhere else, like. But I think that that's the model of the future because I think that you can win more fights and you can have a longer career that way. If you're a stand-up striker, there's a lot of different pathways for you. But I don't think anybody gets through now without having a ground game. So
0: MMA is really di- is really difficult because in, in grappling, right, let's say you're a professional grappler. You're getting invited to these main, you know, combat jujitsu. You make ADCC. If you lose, it, it doesn't really matter that much. It doesn't really matter that yeah. much. You know, you could lose three in a row, and it doesn't really set your career back that much. But – In MMA, man, a loss can really kind of derail some of the— Oh, you can get shelved after one one loss. uh, 100%. And so, like, how many wins are—like, what are you looking for for an amateur? Let's say you were a coach, and what are you looking for in an amateur before they turn pro— and um, you know how how difficult is that mindset, especially when you turn pro? Where man, you know, if, if you start off your pro career zero three like that, UFC
1: dream is is you just push that way back. Yeah, I mean, from the guys that I see that make it all the way to that, you know, to the and and I mean, break it breaking it down this way too is that like the UFC is just three letters. And so, like, one, as the UFC gets bigger and bigger, us as a sport should probably, if it's going to be the NFL, then we should treat it as the NFL and not expect every single fighter that comes through the sport to make it to that level, if that's what we're calling the pinnacle top. But, you know, um, as far as, like, in the record goes... I'm biased towards this. I have a terrible record. I fought every couple weeks, like, right out of the box as a blue belt. like, And so, like, I didn't really have a whole lot of weapons even diving in other than, like I said, some athleticism, a couple, you know, I guess I had been training collectively about a year before my first fight. So, like, I had some tricks. But, like, when I started just jumping in and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting, I was doing things that, like, I would fight guys. I was always the out-of-towner because there was no fight scene in Alabama at that point. Like, at that point, the commission had kind of clamped it down. There was only one show in town. It was really hard to, like, really get anything done. So we traveled for most of our fights. So I was always fighting the hometown hero. And Like, you're not winning the decision. You're going against judges. So, like, I don't necessarily judge a guy by his... Mm. Uh, by his record because I don't necessarily want somebody to touch me by my record. Cause my record's not that great. But as far as what you're looking for from that transition from like amateur to pro, it's a lot like I've heard Brandon here at uh, 10th planet Decatur talk about the fact of like a, a blue belt's not necessarily somebody who can beat all the white belts or like a black belt isn't necessarily somebody who can beat a black belt. It's like each thing. So when I would be looking for somebody who's like ready for a transition from amateur to pro or even from like guy off the couch to a guy that's fighting in an amateur fight is like, how do you behave? Do you behave like a pro fighter? Mm. Do you behave? like I don't care if you're the most talented dude in the world, but do you show up and do all the extra things? Do you do all the things that you're supposed to do? Are you trying? Because like the thing is about fighting it is that you're, you're fighting yourself as much as you're fighting the other guy. Cause if the other guy's willing to do all the other stuff that you're not willing to do, then he's gonna beat you, hands down. Like you might get lucky, you might be in Ghana, you might be able to just touch a guy and put him to sleep. But one day you'll run across the guy that's just as good, just as talented, just as gifted as you are, and he did all the extra stuff you didn't.
0: And you said something that uh, is really important. I think a lot of people <laughs> don't understand how bias going into another guy's hometown and fighting him there is. I've seen some just horrible decision over the years and and honestly it really took my love away and my passion to kind of coach MMA for a long time because uh you know I'd be with a fighter or I'd go out and watch one of our fighters go and you're just not gonna win a decision nine times out of ten in another person's hometown and so I think that's an interesting point about the record especially if it is decision losses where you really can't judge a guy based on a decision loss because I spent
1: eight and a half minutes on top of a guy and lost. Yes, I, I, I've seen. <laughs> that.
0: I really have seen it. So if you're like, if, if you've never been to an amateur fight, and you don't kind of understand. Like, just think about how bad some of the UFC decisions are, and now multiply that yeah. by five. Yeah, because there yeah. really are that level of decisions yeah. being made, and, yeah. and it, you know it's criminal, but at the same time, it is. Uh, It's like the guy
1: that got interrupted with uh, Sugar Sean this weekend, uh, by by Herb. I've seen that happen in so many fights, like just robbing a guy of like he's fine. He's I know it looks bad, but he's okay with it. He signed the dotted line, and so that's what I mean. Is a lot of times we nerf, and I think that those type decisions start getting worse. Like back to my earlier point on that of like people are like like it's not. We're trying to make something safe that's not safe. And I think that that's really, like, we need to just acknowledge the risks that we're taking. And then we both need to train as hard as we can to not allow the bad things to happen. Mm. And that's what creates the sport that we all love. So what about an
0: amateur, though? Do you have a problem, like, with a ref, like, stopping it early in an amateur fight since neither guy's <laughs> getting paid? Because I understand, especially like in a pro scenario, um, and that Sugar Sean
1: fight's a great example of... uh, That was a bad stoppage. Yeah, It was a really bad stoppage. If you were going to stop it like that, you should have stopped it like two rounds ago. Uh,
0: Definitely in the middle of the second round, you should (laughs) have just
1: went, okay, I've seen enough. Yes, I'm with you But if you're going to let it go all the way to 30 seconds left, just let the poor guy walk out with his head held high and that he just walked through everything somebody threw at him. But, like, the i don't I don't think that the 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 early stoppage in the amateur thing is necessarily a bad thing. I think a lot of that boils down to educating the referees, which they're getting better about, like in my personal experience, like I said, I was on the front end of a of a commission, so like some of those refs were pretty bad, like I've had refs that have just they'll let you die, they'll sit there and just look you in the eye as you die. And then I've also had refs that stopped a fight because they heard somebody gargle. And so just the guy in the inferior position, unfortunately that was me, lost the fight. And neither one of the fighters were like, "We're like, I don't even know why he stopped it. And so I think that it goes by variation. I'm slanted towards jiu-jitsu in the way that, like, in that scenario, I told the ref in the back, I was like, look, if I'm in a choke and I'm in an MMA fight and I'm not tapping, I don't want you to come in until I'm limp. Now, by all means, please pull the the trained killer off of me if I'm limp. you know that's kind of the agreement we have in here that that's what you're here for. But if you think that I'm unsafe, I feel like that there's there's a little bit more that you can leave up to the fighter, and I think that if we educate the coaches, educate the fighters, educate them better, then you have a better understanding but then like that's a tall order, like I'm talking about a utopia there, but
0: Yeah. And it does get it's like you said, we're trying to make something that is dangerous and we're trying to, you know, kind of like football. Football is a dangerous sport and people are going to continue to get hurt in football because it is in many instances, there are moments on the field where it is like two cars crashing into each other. Oh, yeah. And MMA is the same thing. Like you just you can't make a head kick safe. No. You can't make elbows. I think safe. shin
1: pads make head kicks more dangerous. I think, I think shin guards make a head kick to where a guy can indiscriminately swing his leg as hard as he wants and try to knock you out with no repercussions. Do that without a shin pad. It hurts.
0: Well, this has been one of the interesting arguments that, you know, Rogan's said, uh, you know, in the whole bare knuckle thing. You yeah. know, and Rogan's kind of, there was, <laughs> Rogan had a stance a couple of years ago where he was like, I, I don't think there should be gloves Take the gloves I don't off, think, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then he saw the aftermath of a bare knuckle fight. I believe it was maybe like Jason Knight versus, um, you know, um, uh, what's his name the goat uh, yeah yeah you know what I'm
1: talking yeah about. I saw I saw that one and it, I mean it looked like two guys walked into a meat grinder yeah. but they're still boxing the same way that we've boxed all these years with big pads and big they're still they're still wrapped their hands are still yeah. wrapped it's it's tr- it's not truly
0: bare knuckle right do, would you be interested though in like a true bare knuckle fight like in do you think jujitsu guys would have the the big advantage in a true bare knuckle fight
1: so with like I've had this discussion a couple times recently, and I have yet to go back. I need to do my research and go watch it, which I need – if anybody knows where to watch it, I need somebody to tell me where to watch it. Did you watch any of the uh, – was it the Game Bread Fight, fight Series, All's Bare Knuckle MMA? No, I have not seen that. I've heard a couple people tell me that the jiu-jitsu guys did really, really well because the thing is, is like we're saying, is it like – you have now fragile things at the end of this club that you're trying to use. So I'd be interested in looking into the rules. It would it would determine the rule set. If it was a bare knuckle fight and it was a real bare knuckle fight, and we had, you know, kind of like I don't know about NHB because I'm not interested in going in there and just getting fish hooked by some psychopath. But like I I wouldn't be opposed to a bare knuckle MMA fight. I have no interest in a bare knuckle fight, a bare knuckle uh, boxing fight. Like, no interest in that. That's Boxing, to me, I love the science. I love the art. When I was a little kid, I used to watch boxing, like, all kinds of – like, I was a big fan of that. But, like, as far as doing it as a sport, it's two men making in a gentleman's agreement of whoever takes the most hits to the head and is still standing wins. Well, Let's take the gloves off, and now let's just mutilate each other's faces. I just feel like that's a short career that you can't really sustain. And I completely agree with that. I'm not the biggest,
0: like, hey – Let's um, express ourselves in just boxing. You know? Yeah, I, I I feel very similar. I mean, boxing is very beautiful, but at the same time, I, I think boxing really needs grappling involved to really showcase the the limitations. You know, because people get so confident in their boxing, yeah. and it's like they they feel like they're walking around with you know a bazooka. They're like I can box, and it's
1: like yeah. you're very limited if you uh, can box if I'm agreeing not to grab the back of your head. Oh, yes. now I'm grabbing the back of your head? The, what are you doing now? The Floyd-Connor
0: uh, fight was very interesting, you know, because there were just moments in that fight where Floyd looked like an idiot because, you know, Conor, you know, could just... Connor would, like, end up behind him, or right. Connor would end up... You know, Connor was doing non-boxing things yeah. that, you know, in a real fight, he would have just murdered him, you know? Yeah,
1: but you could have the argument, too, that, like, that's like watching a guy that's, like, super athletic go against a jujitsu guy. When they're not doing jujitsu y stuff, you can kind of look dumb occasionally because you're like, well, do the thing. But, <laughs> hey, there's definitely some truth to that. Definitely <laughs> some truth to that. And so I want to move on now
0: and talk about your link up with the dream, you know, Stephen Aiken. You know, you yep. guys have this podcast. You guys are doing a lot of really cool things, man. You've got, uh, you know, your tournament you're uh you know you're a big part of his gym down there in Perry Georgia how did you meet steven and what drew you to steven 10th and tenth planet um
1: steven and i met down there in my 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 little sister uh my middle sister actually um they both i have two sisters both younger than me and um becca had tra- had watched me Train all these years, like I was talking about. She had watched MMA, she had gone, and everywhere, every time she came to watch me train and whatnot, she would see me and the gi doing jiu jitsu, and then she would see us in MMA and no gi practice. because we were like a real MMA heavy group, like even when we didn't have the gi on, we were kind of like faking punches to each other. Like we were always thinking about, oh, I could punch you here. And so, like, she was never really attracted to jiu jiu because she thought nogi jiu-jitsu or whatever was that well she went with me in 2019 i made a run because i had overheard some black belts tell them tell me that the most terrifying thing that they could think of was the adult purple belt division in the IBJJF at that point because they were like just because i mean there's a bunch of monsters three four years ago that are all kind of like almost brown belts now that were, like, killing it. So I was like, I'm going to jump into the nogi worlds, And so I did a bunch of IBJJF tournaments, and, and she went with me to nationals, and I went to uh, 10th Planet Vegas while I was there. And it was one of those things that it was a packed room. I mean, there was, I can't tell you how many people. We were shoulder to shoulder bumping into each other, all just rolling and flowing. And she said that when she was sitting there, like, taking pictures for me and whatnot, watching that, she was like, that looks like a lot of fun. Like all this nogi stuff, like nobody's getting punched, everybody's real cool, everybody's really relaxed. And so that was probably my first time in a tenth planet gym. And I really liked the people. And I was kind of like, Oh, that's cool. Well maybe it was something different because it was the weekend of nationals and a bunch of people were in town and so like that was interesting. And so um, at the time she started trying – so, like, that was 19. And then, like, going into, into 2019 and into 2020, she wanted to start training jiu-jitsu. And so she started training over at uh, Cole Miller's down there and was training for a while. And Steven had just moved home from San, Die- from San Diego or, like, to the area of home for him. And so, like, they moved there, and um, he branched off and started his own gym. And Becca had always really liked the Nogi stuff. She wasn't really a fan of all that and whatnot. And uh, me and Steven became pretty good friends and started talking. And we had talked about a couple different projects and whatnot. And then um, I got a bunch of time freed up, and I was like, hey, I was like, those projects I talked about, we talked about, like, let's launch them. And, um, basically I launched them with him and started training with him. And I made a post today about, um, going to class at his school kind of changed how I evaluated and how I like trained and understood jujitsu because like for the first time I didn't mind that he would sit there and just like rant about this one particular thing. And, like, the only other person I had ever found that taught like that was Andy, like, my original coach. Like, Andy is one that, like, he'll take, like, a footstep in an arm drag that's, like, the very first movement, and he'll spend three hours on that one detail. But, like, you're not bored ever. And so, like, that's – Stephen's that way. St- Stephen can take something and just start breaking it apart, and then he'll, and then he's willing for you to ask a question, and he doesn't be like, oh, that was a dumb question. Like, he just goes, hmm. And then he'll, like, go down that wormhole. And what, like, we have to remind him that, hey, we need to go drill. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'll go drill. But, like, the 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 instruction that he gives kind of opened up the 10th Planet world to me because, like, when I initially saw it, it was kind of – Scary because it's like, oh, I know all these moves, but like they have different names and you're a little bit different than what I've seen. And so like it kind of like ego checks you a little bit when you first because it, 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 it's different. But then like as I've gotten more and more and now I've come up here and I've trained with y'all and heard you teach and heard Brandon teach and seen the like the 10th planet system for the first time is something that like it makes sense in my head because it's not such a rigid system. Like, it's malleable. There's things that plug in, and then this guy has one take, and then you have this. I saw, at Stephen does a great job of this. He brings in uh, some some big, big guys uh, to his school for his people to get, you know, exposure to high level, and one of the first ones he brought in was Boogie. And when I saw Boogie doing stuff, like, a lot of some of the weird stuff Boogie does is stuff that, like, not the full thing, but, like, things that... I, I had done organically a couple of times and then like been told like, Oh no, no, no. Like you, you do it this way. And I'm like, yeah, but like this works. And then I saw Boogie like adapting and making things work and being like, well, if this needs to be here, then you just move this. Like his, his whole rubber guard system is basically what I modeled. I started with Boogie stuff. 'Cause like that was the first seminar that I filmed with Steven and like so like I've have watched a bunch of it. And then like I've watched Steven and I, so I've built like from what, what I saw from Boogie and from Steven and now like I'm spending time with Brandon. So like I've now got this hodgepodge of four different styles of the same move and then like you have this ability like in the in the rubber guard system to like take an Plata and stretch it out over time. And now you have what was one move into like 17 different moves and they're not taught as moves. They're taught as flows and they're taught as like this connects to this, this does this. Whereas like I'd always traditionally seen it taught of like, here's a Kimura. Now we're going to drill a Kimura. Now we're going to talk about a Kimura again. Now we're going to do this and move on to a straight arm bar. Well, it never plays out that way. And so like, in the 10th planet system I've gotten to see let's take this thought and then watch it play out and so like that's kind of I've now lost your question because I'm so deep in my rant but like that that's what like when I discovered it through Steven I almost like refell in love with jujitsu through the 10th planet stuff because it was like oh like it's this new labyrinth of stuff so uh, that's beautiful, and and Stephen's one of the
0: uh, one of the best representations of tenth planet. I, I just love his attitude. It, his just he's a phenomenal. I can only imagine uh, how phenomenal he is to work with every day. He seems like a, a great coach, you know. So th- th- that's really cool.
1: And he really loves his people. Like that's really what I think that some jujitsu like misses in 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 the culture is that like sometimes for whatever reason, like the instructor, the black belt that runs the gym is like it's almost like a selfish reason that he's like running this is mine, this is my gym, this is my dream. This is my he calls his stuff the dream, but if you pay attention to him, it's not his dream. He wants to help everybody facilitate their dream. Mm. And, like, you know, if jiu part of that, great. But, like, I mean, that dude is some people's, like, straight-up, like, like he, you can call him and he, he's there for you personally, Jujitsu, Like, that's the type of stuff that, like, I think some coaches, and not all coaches are capable of that. But I think that, like, some people don't really provide for their people and they don't mm. The best way to put it is, they don't acknowledge what they mean to some people. Mm. Like you're somebody's Obi Wan. Like you're you're somebody's like go to. So like, if you don't acknowledge that power, I think sometimes you can accidentally hurt people because you don't acknowledge what you've created here. And I mean, jujitsu is a thing off to the side. Like that's what it is. But like. This is sometimes like this is people's escape, this is their you know way out, this is their wh- whatever it is to them like I think that as a black belt, and I'm not a black belt so I'm saying this from like a different perspective, of, but I think that like sometimes it's the the people don't realize what their their actions cause throughout their like culture of their gym. Beautifully put, man. I, I love the part that, you know,
0: a lot A lot of people don't recognize, you know, even purple belts on up because white belts are always going to look up to purple belts. I, I don't care how many black belts you have at a school. Purple belts still, it's a special belt. And, and people, you know, white belts in particular, really, um, you know, that, that's a dream of theirs, you know, that they, they really, man, they, they just imagine themselves being a purple belt one day. And uh, some of the best work done in the gym is after, you know, when people are just sitting around talking, people are sitting around sharing and uh, well put, man. Very, very well put. Um, And now I want to ask you about the wandering grappler. And (laughs) this is what this is uh, something that really interests me. I I think what you're doing is um, really healthy and it should be be it should be more part of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu culture, you know, most of the time people are very like tribe oriented like this is my tribe screw everybody else or we're better than you but kind of talk to people like what is the wandering grappler and what are you trying to do with it
1: yeah i mean it was kind of it was kind of born in a way that i've went back when i was training at auburn mma and like i realized in the mma career that like you know, I wasn't racking up the stellar knockout reel. I wasn't, you know, getting this, this. So, so I was, I was gonna have to sell myself to like keep doing this thing. And uh, I think more fighters, even if you are racking up the knockout reels, need to understand that like you can hate the Paul Brothers all you want, but two basically amateur fighters just got some of the biggest pay per views that anyone has ever imagined. Off of their branding ability. So, like, as a fighter, if you can brand yourself, that's imperative. So, I created uh, a vlog and I decided because I'd gotten into cameras and I'd gotten into this, and um, I quit my job at the line uh, at the power company and um, had gone into business with my mom on a marketing company. And that was kind of going to facilitate the whole fight life and the fight career and do all that. And I have like one super good client. Um, if I have advice to anybody who's starting their own thing, don't rely on one really good client. <laughs> like stack it up a little bit <laughs> and then move. But like don't get that one that one account that you're like, yep, that's my ticket. I'm out. Like uh, I learned a lot of lessons by jumping that way. And I'm very much the type of person that reads like two steps of the instructions and then dives in. But uh I wouldn't advise that. Um but as far as what I got sidetracked. What was the, the second part of that question? So
0: um what are you trying to do with the, with wonder, the wonder and grappler? grappler. So yes. the
1: wonder and grappler came from the Daily Stack, which was my daily vlog that I started to facilitate all that. Um the Wonder and Grappler I've tried to relaunch kind of the vlog idea a couple times. Um I have one that has three parts and I have a fourth one that I'm saving in the vault right now. Uh, called Craft that was on my channel, the Daily Stack that is uh, was was documenting me going to the the worlds, snowgy worlds, um, and then uh, I've always been real. I've read a bunch of his uh, most of his books. I used to watch all of his stuff. I still watch it if if I can catch it on one of the streaming services. But Anthony Bourdain, um, I've always been a big fan of him. I've always been a big fan of like chefs and like the the back world like did did you ever work like in a uh in a kitchen or anything like did you ever like i didn't but i i feel like i am a big fan of like
0: chef's table and stuff like yeah
1: that, so, i uh, mean those guys are like pirates like they're the most fun people like you you get to meet the most interesting people so like i was always like super fascinated with uh anthony bourdain and i'd always had this idea that i kept mulling over and trying to like create Kind of like what Anthony Bourdain would have created if he was still alive, and I would imagine that he was headed down a like jujitsu and food show like that. I mean, I I would have produced that out of like for free for that guy. Like that would be amazing. So like that's kind of the idea where it started, and then like my uh, at Auburn MMA where I was at, kind of like just different. Gym politics and stuff happened. And so, like, I just kind of ended up like gymless and coachless for a little while because, like, Andy had kids and had to, like, go off and, you know, do some, some, some work. And, like, dude went off and started his own moving company and whatnot. And he's, like, thriving and doing great. But, like, it kind of, the whole crew kind of broke up so I was like well what am I going to do and I'd always heard people say like you got to go to Atlanta if you're going to make it in this sport like there's nothing around here you got to go to Atlanta so I just strapped up and I started driving up to Kenny Kim's in Atlanta and, um, I would just go up there. I, you know, I would stay in, uh, extended stay. I'd sleep in a car. I'd do whatever I needed to do to just like get as much training as I could. I trained between there. I trained with some guys like Geek Guy Curry and, in Sandy Springs and whatnot. And like, uh, uh, like trying to just like get my break into the sport. And the whole time, like I've got a bunch of that filmed, but I wasn't really quite sure how to like figure it out and whatnot. And then this year, as I've been working with Steven, and then I met you guys through PGF and whatnot, I really made the tying factor to stop being so much MMA, and I kind of leaned further just into the jujitsu side and the grappling. and the Because like, the Tenth Planet guys, like I said earlier... Not only in the ideas are you malleable, but you're malleable in your, like, acceptance. Like, you'll go into a Tenth Planet gym, and you have every spectrum of person. Well, other jujitsu's kind of have that, like other schools. But, like, it's always kind of sectioned off and clicky and, like, whatnot. I haven't been to the big tent planet schools, so I'm sure there's. I'm sure that everywhere there's problems, but like I've found that the guys are a whole lot more of like, oh yeah, yeah, you train over there with such and such. Come on, come on, let's go train. Even if y'all compete, even if if you compete against each other in competitions and whatnot, the sharing of information was what I really got attracted to, and so like the wandering grappler kind of flourished into this of its. Right now, season one's following me through the PGF qualifiers and trying to get on to season three. And then, um, like, as it's going along, what's happening is that, like, I go to all these different schools. I go to all the – I'm under – you know, I come to your class. I come to Brandon's class. I come to Steven's class. I go to P.J. Barch's seminar. I go to Eli, or uh, Elijah um, Carlton's seminar. You know, I go to uh, you know all, all over the place. We had uh, I had Gabe Tuttle on there, and so like it's gonna be all these different black belts and and high level guys that I've got uh, content of that you can't go quit your job and go travel to all these places and train with all these guys, but I did, and so the Wondering Grappler is this thing is that you can watch it, and the show is kind of an entertainment aspect and whatnot of being able to watch kinda like what's going on in my life. But then ultimately what I would love to have is to be able to have a library and I'm I'm creating that is that like a library of all the different guys. And then like you can, you know, be a member and and be a part of this and then like that's gonna couple with the launch of a magazine that's gonna be down the road that's that's gonna keep feeding into this and tie kind of a, a, a artistic aspect into it that that I'm looking forward to the, like a lot of my art friends and whatnot, like a way that we're going to get physical art into people's hands is through a magazine. Come and on. like the wonder and is going to feed into all that. So yeah, that, that is super cool.
0: I didn't realize the depth of it. I knew probably 40% of that. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't realize, um, you know, especially with like the magazine and the, the kind of the, the learning aspect to it um I, how important is it for people to go out and travel and train at other gyms like how is important has that been in
1: your journey and then like why should people go out and travel and train somewhere else to me that's the whole point of all this i mean like there's the competition aspect and like that tickles a certain part of my brain and there's the like high level thing but like man there's nothing i lo- nothing i love more than a good open mat where you can go get like 22, 25 rounds with just, like, n- never the same person. Nobody stops moving till, like, that 22nd round. And, um, you can go to a room where, like, n- none of us have to speak the same language even. Like, we we do speak the same language. We speak jujitsu, So, like, we can go out there. And I'm, I'm, I know that people who really know me, and, like, I don't really necessarily come off of this, but, like, if I'm at a party. I'm not really a social butterfly and especially the more that I get into jiu-jitsu like the 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 memes you see of like the the like Jason standing off in a corner like staring at a bush and like you're the only person that likes to recreationally strangle people at the party. Like I increasingly feel like that person. You kind of just get and I know you experience this, like you're at a party and everybody just sitting there asking you stupid fight questions and you're just like, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, like that's what I do. And, but as far as the, the, the traveling and the training and the, the, the people you get to meet, I mean, I've trained with professional fighters and then like, I've trained with neurosurgeons. Like it's just, fascinating and and sometimes the neurosurgeon's better than the pro fighter was like it's it jujitsu is such a melting pot that you can just you can educate yourself in a way that i don't think there's a any other way to experience that now as far as like do i encourage people to do it 100 percent do you need to probably learn some of the nuances of how to behave before you do it a lot? Probably. Or you're going to learn the hard way. So go
0: ahead and uh, and give us kind of five rules for visiting another school. Or like what are kind of the un- – because there's a lot of unspoken rules in some places – like, I know some places, um, and I've seen this, um, where if you ask a black belt to roll, like, the black belt will, like, get pissed. Like I don't get, believe in that rule. Ask him. Uh, uh, but but yeah. I've yeah. seen it. I've seen it. <laughs> I've you know.
1: seen it. I've been the receiving end. Yeah. Uh,
0: and so there's just things like that, you know. What are kind of the things that, that you would tell somebody, kind of caution them, like, hey, you're going to a new school. You've never been there before what are some of the things they should look first at?
1: things first, no matter where you are, if you're at your home gym, anywhere, whatnot, if you walk off the mat without your shoes. And I'm not talking about like just like stepping off, grabbing your bottle of water, like like reaching across and like maybe touching the edge. But if like you physically walk off the mat and you don't put shoes on, then you're a disgusting human being. Um but, like, definitely put your shoes on, like, when you're going to go into the changing rooms, when you're going to go into the bathrooms. Like, that's, like, if we're talking to a white belt, if we're ta- like, like if you're at your home gym or anywhere else, put your shoes on. <laughs> but, like, definitely you don't want to be the traveling guy that just, like, walk. Like, I know you've been in the room where, like, there's a guy visiting or whatever, and he's real cool and whatnot and doing everything. And then you just watch him just walk straight off the mats into the bathroom. And you're like, what did you just do? So, like, that's my biggest one. Uh, keeping yourself from not being the smelly visitor is another one as far as, like, keep a deodorant stick in your bag that you hit yourself with right when you change coming off the road because, like, I'm one. I don't know if you're one. I sweat while I'm driving. I can get a little bit of the road funk. So, like, I don't want to be smelling that. I don't want to be putting that on people when I'm there, and I want people to, like, to roll with me. Uh, The biggest thing, too, is, like, most everybody's super cool in the community like if you want to do something like i i film all my stuff like usually i'm just like hey you cool if i film almost if i'm if i'm in a, if i'm in an mma gym sometimes guys get a little bit like oh like are you filming like they're worried that i'm gonna film some secret move they're doing or something like that but most of the jiu Jitsu gyms especially the like 10th planet gyms as long as you ask most of the time guys are pretty cool about filming. Um, what is that? That's three. Number four is, uh, you bring change if you're traveling for more than one day to go wash your clothes. Cause if you're traveling, you're going to pile up. So like on average, I'll train twice a day. So that's two sets of clothes that are just drenched in sweat. So like laundry mats become a hangout spot for you. Usually they'll have Wi-Fi. I'll sit there and edit or whatever. Um, but laundry becomes a pretty big pretty big one. And then uh, number five is like I always uh, I personally feel out every role. I don't go in guns a-blazing. I let them, especially if it's like my first time training at a gym and I don't know anybody there, like I don't crack open leg locks on you first. If you open up the leg locks, okay, now we're going to go play that game. I'll get tapped. I'll get caught in things because guys will just like grab something and run off with it. But like I don't ever initiate the aggression until I know whether or not we're cool. I just kind of play a protective game. But that's just my personal approach because I'm I'm also a purple belt. And the first time that I was really like spending time in rooms that I didn't know anybody, I would get left kind of like sitting by myself a lot. And I used to be like, Why does nobody want to be my friend? And then I realized that when I'm super sweaty and all that and whatnot, I got long hair, beard, all this. Like I look like a scary maniac. And so nobody wanted to roll with me. And so I will walk up and ask people to roll. Which, as you referenced earlier, just be aware that there's some gyms that they're not cool with it. So, like, read the room. I guess that's my number six. Read the room. Like, don't be that guy. Like, if if it's a room that, like, they don't like you to ask for a black belt to to roll, just don't ask him. Ask that purple belt. Like, but I don't know. And, like, I guess I pose a question to you. In the no-gi world, how do you know? That's an interesting question, and I'm not gonna lie. Um, there
0: are times that like I get annoyed if somebody asks me to roll, and that's gonna be more if I'm like hyper focused on what I want to accomplish that day. And yeah. so I've kind of got rolls already picked out. And so there have been times visitors asked me to roll, and I've never ever ever made a you know like what are you like? But yeah, in my yeah. mind, yeah. I'm like like why does dude ask like this dude shouldn't ask me to roll, you know? <laughs> I recognize that it's ridiculous, but it's still, like, in my mind, you know. Most, 75% of the time, it's no big deal at all. I'm usually one of the guys that's, like, last to, um, because it is kind of at our gym, very few people ask me or Brandon to roll. It's just, again, it's just one of those kind of unspoken rules, like, the black belt will ask you to roll if he wants to roll with you, but, you can ask Brandon or me to roll, and it's again, it's not like I'll just say no if I've if I've got like a different plan. So, you know, it, there is
1: some of that. Uh, but, I I asked Jekyll to roll one time.
0: Yeah, how did that go?
1: Oh, it was an amazing roll, but I got absolutely waxed. But he's a nice guy. Uh, so, the, the last question I want to ask you before we end
0: this podcast horror stories do you have any like training horror stories um, or just like horrible experiences and you don't have to like say any
1: names or no, no 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 uh I mean horror stories I mean yeah I mean, I've seen a couple guys like break stuff in training or get dropped and whatnot but like as far as when I realized that I wasn't playing a game and this was like training for real was the first time that I ever shadow sparred like warming up shadow sparring with a guy that was like a UFC level fighter and we were just there in hand wraps we were just like first five minutes of class and we're going and kind of like feeling each other out and doing it and he whizzed a punch that I felt it go by my face and I slipped of course but then I was like if I don't slip he's gonna knock me out and so, like, that was kind of my turning point when I realized that, like, there's guys out there that'll just hurt you in warm-ups because they're just there for their own work. So, yeah. No, I, I don't have any, like, absolutely wild things. Uh, I saw a guy on a lateral one time just, like, trip over his own feet and just, like, pro throw his leg uh-huh. sideways and just doing a lateral and that's made me like unrealistically in the very back corner of my mind afraid of laterals for a long time of my career but uh i got over that
0: man it's been an absolute pleasure that's an hour right there man Um, loved it yeah it was really nice having you on isaac is there anything else you want to say like you know shout out anything or work can people follow you and follow kind of the uh the wandering grappler and what you and Steven and, and everybody's doing
1: so for me there's uh you can find me anywhere on uh as the daily stack or at the underscore daily underscore stack on Instagram and then uh the wandering grappler is actually a show that is currently living on uh my YouTube channel which is the daily stack um, anything that I'm doing with Steven is under the Dream Banner. Uh, anything on on his channel is stuff that I've uh, helped him with or done and and whatnot. And um, yeah, those are all the places you can find me. Stackhouse Jiu-Jitsu on Facebook. But yeah, you guys definitely check out
0: Isaac's stuff. He's um, does some phenomenal camera work, phenomenal editing. Um, I, I really think uh, this this wandering grappler five to ten years from now is going to be a big part of the scene. So. Get on it early, support him, and until next time, you guys know I love and appreciate all of you. Peace.